Hello, and thank you very much for tuning in to the Green Majority. It is officially the month of April, and uh, Jesus Christ is being crucified. Soon he will rise again to haunt the earth forever. Jesus came up through the ground so Uh, Stefan Krishner, when host editor, is going to interview Fatima Syed, is that right? Yes. About the Supreme Court of Canada's decision to uphold the federal government's right to institute a countrywide carbon tax. First, before we get into news and that interview, and then Stefan ranting meticulously afterwards, he's going to tell us why it matters at all. I mean, it's not really what I do. What are you doing? I wrote like an intro to like. I thought you were gonna tell me why it matters. You 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 know why it matters. I, I wrote why it matters later. Okay. Um, well, what do you have? What do you okay. have? Well, this is what I have. Okay. Welcome to the Price on Carbon show. Oh my goodness. Well, 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 well specifically, <laughs> welcome to the Price on Carbon's constitutional show. Oh my goodness. Because uh, very shortly we will be joined by Fatima Syed, <laughs> a freelance journalist, who has has been following the story closely. And we'll give us a breakdown of how we got here, what the ruling it was, and how folks have responded to it. We'll also end the show with a brief spot of punditry on the topic, as there are a few threads to pull together on that, on, on what I think is safe to say is the biggest court case in Canadian climate change history. That's what I had said. So you can't tell me why it matters. It matters because the problem that Canada has faced in the past... 20 years of climate action has been the fact that the federal government is very weak constitutionally in Canada. And so whenever the federal government would try to get something done on climate change, a number of the provinces would say it's an overreach, and then the ones that are more heavily polluting would just basically refuse to to be a part of this altogether and would leave. And this ruling means that the, the, the very least, the price on carbon can continue and that can be a part of a national strategy on, car- on climate change. And that is a very, very big deal in terms of ways that Canada could actually respond to climate change. Because it's, it means that we, we actually can have a pan-Canadian action that isn't beholden to the least happy or most climate change unfriendly. The, like, the government has authority to act on climate change that supersedes province's individual authority. They they were very, very specific, as the interview will go in, about the ruling. The ruling is that this particular way that this particular price on carbon works is constitutional because of the fact that climate change is an existential threat to the world and that there's not really a way to tackle it without a pan-Canadian approach. And so it falls under what they call peace, order, and good governance. But we'll get into that. Okay. Well, before you uh, jauntily continue prancing on with your Supreme Court show... The Supreme Court show. I have all of this...
Rainforest Action Network has calculated that the 60 biggest banks in the world have provided the fossil fuel industry with $3.8 trillion since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. These people are financing the destruction of the Earth and the uprooting of millions and potentially billions of lives. For instance, there was Roberto Lovato recently saying on Democracy Now! that the record numbers of people trying to get into the United States at the southern border should be classed as climate refugees, since Central America is a dry corridor and is getting drier, with climate change drying up its lakes, but also causing flooding, destroying crop cycles and fish stocks, and intensifying the many crises that have already been caused by international policy. In Canada... RBC is the biggest funder of fossil fuels, having invested over $200 billion in the fossil fuel industry since the signing of the Paris Agreement. The International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies is reporting that 10.3 million people have been displaced by the climate crisis in the past six months. At least 40,000 people evacuated their homes in March in the Australian states of New South Wales and Queensland. It's the worst flooding in 100 years in some places, and is due to torrential rainfall from the convergence of several weather systems. One river rose to the highest it's ever been. Snakes have been filling up trees, and spiders have been crawling on people to flee the rising water. Some are hoping the floods will drown the mouse plague. The disappearance of old-growth forests in the tropics, which store a lot of carbon, increased 12% in 2020. 4.2 million hectares of tropical old-growth forest was lost last year, an area the size of the Netherlands. Illegal gold and diamond mining has been accelerating in Brazil under strongman imbecile Bolsonaro, with more land being violently stolen from the Yanomami. According to NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States, nearly half of the country is in a moderate to exceptional drought, which is supposed to get worse over the coming three months. A new study in the Nature Geoscience that analyzed tree rings in Europe appears to show that the series of droughts and heat waves that have been hitting Europe for the past seven years is unprecedented for the last 2,000 years. A study in the American Geophysical Union says that if we do not mitigate carbon emissions, summers in the northern hemisphere could last six months by 2100, with worse droughts and wildfires. The study states, quote, Even if the current warming rate does not accelerate, changes in seasons will still be exacerbated in the future. Under the business-as-usual scenario, summer is projected to last nearly half a year, but winter less than two months by 2100. A new study in the journal Nature about protecting the oceans mentions that bottom trawling, dragging a huge net with heavy weights along the sea floor, causes the ocean to emit carbon every year in an amount equivalent to 15 to 20% of the carbon that the ocean absorbs. The climate-focused investor group Climate Action 100+, Plus has released a report showing that the world's 159 top-emitting companies have yet to release any real plan to reach their net-zero climate pledges. 
Climate Action 100 Plus has members that manage a total of $54 trillion in assets and started in 2017 to pressure these companies. We know oil companies knew about climate change for a very long time, even as they tried to hide the science. But now, according to internal documents investigated by The Guardian, the oil industry also knew about the poisonous effect of their air pollution when breathed in by humans for at least the past 50 years, and the industry has been fighting pollution controls the entire time. The Canadian Doubleview Gold Corporation has been evicted from Talton territory in B.C. The Talton nation has good relationships with many companies who come into their land for resource development, but Doubleview has been arrogant colonialist idiots, ignoring Talton requirements and suing their elders for trying to stop them from encroaching on protected land. There will be physical confrontation if the company refuses to leave, and British Columbia may have to buy back the mining rights from the company. The Silcotan Nation is challenging BC's 2019 decision to allow the Gibraltar mine to dump 50% more mine liquid into the Fraser River. Two lawsuits were filed in March by First Nations against the Yukon government for not consulting them in mining and development decisions. Indigenous and environmental groups in Saskatchewan are calling for the province to halt the sale of Crown land and keep it public. We've said all the time on the show that climate change is happening right now, but I think people don't really understand the ways in which I think it will slowly become normalized and the ways in which these differing types of, say, all you know, that 10.3 million people have been displaced in the last six months, or the fact that in Australia, this year, it's flooding. Last year, it was fires. And don't get me started on the mouse plague. That's a whole other operation. But... I think what we're seeing is more and more and more, as these stories get normalized, it becomes normal to hear about massive people's uh, people's displaced. It gets normal to hear about massive fire seasons lasting six months in California. You know, it gets normal to hear all of these things. And that ability to absorb and then normalize, which we've seen in humanity, especially during COVID, will, I think allow us to keep presuming nothing is really changing that fast or nothing's really changing as much as we can imagine it until you get to the doomsday scenarios that were called out, you know, with billions of people displaced and with, you know, these really, really disastrous and consistently once in a hundred year storms happening every year and all of that coming together and then just being, you know, normal and how we, what we have to do to survive. And that is why I think why this conversation about Canadian climate action is, ends up being so important because, you know, we are the people responsible for the climate action that's happened now. Fatima, in the interview that we get to, references this meme that the former conservative prime minister, uh, former conservative candidate uh, posted about China's greenhouse gas emissions compared to Canada's. And it's like, Comparing current right now climate emissions does not do service to the responsibility that is on us to respond. Canada has had historically very high emissions in all, 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 all hundreds of hundred years. And so 
you know, obviously we're a much smaller country, so it's still a little bit different deal, but still, like, the warming we're seeing now is caused by the nations that have been, you know, the, the Western nations that have had all the power for the last hundred years. And that legacy of colonialism is a ma major part of this. And so we can't presume that we'll see some small changes somewhere else or further down the road, or that we, it is not on us to do this work because other people are emitting more now. You know, we are responsible for the warming that's happening now, and the warming that's happening now is having terrible consequences. And so we have to do something. Stop looking at me, you. Stop looking at me, you. Smoking that black butter shit. You're all bruised, intoxicated, yammering on. What? What does the government know? We're smoking our hands, fumbling, I know. I'm bulldozing the couch. Look at my teeth. Stalactites. Blood black. I'm Seven Hostetter, and as teased earlier, I am joined by the indomitable Fatima Syed, a freelance journalist who just finished publishing I'm going to say the best story about the change in Canadian's carbon price out there. So welcome, Batima. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me and those very kind and not true words. <laughs> I mean, we get, we'll, we'll have the debate after the show. We'll, we'll, okay, get, we'll okay. get to it. Okay. But we had talked about having this conversation way back in the fall when the Supreme Court was actually deciding this because you listened to all of it. And so I feel like you've been following this story for the sort of breadth of the time. Well, I feel like I've been following it since uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford got elected. Like, I feel like I've been following it since the beginning of the legal battles. So, right. yeah, I, I think I've been there for all of it. And I've had a front seat, which has been, I guess, both a privilege and a curse. I don't know. I haven't decided. <laughs> That's the question of knowledge generally. Is knowledge a privilege <laughs> or a curse? Hard to say. But so in relatively brief terms, because we'll obviously dive into more of it shortly. What was the decision made last week? So in a 6-3 ruling, so there's nine justices in the Supreme Court. So in a 6-3 majority ruling, the Supreme Court of Canada decided that the federal government's carbon price is constitutional, which basically means that all the provinces that were arguing that the federal government had no right whatsoever to impose a carbon price on their provinces if they didn't like their climate plan or if their climate plan didn't meet the national standards that the federal government had set. So these provinces said that you can't do this in our homes, in our backyards, basically. And the Supreme Court was like, nope, they totally can do this. And they can do this because climate change is, in the Supreme Court's word, an existential threat of the highest order that is endangering not just Canada, but the entire world. And it was honestly a pretty bombshell decision for the Supreme Court to make. And it was very carefully written and extremely interesting and extremely long at 405 pages. Did you read all 405 pages? I, on the day that it was out, no. Have I read them since? Almost. 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 It's a long wow. document. I kid. Yes, that's that's an epic. <laughs> and, it's, it, and it's not a fun epic. It's not like a Patrick Rothfuss, Name of the Wind, Harry Potter, book five. Like, it's, it's none of those. No, no, it's I'm sure significantly <laughs> less interesting for most There's of us. There's a lot it. of footnotes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which which historically are not fun. Sorry to all historians, <laughs> but footnotes, generally speaking, not fun. 
But speaking of history, good segue there. How did we get here? As you said, this story started in 2018 when Doug Ford got elected. And now we are here. Take us through the history. Do we want the long history or the short history? Because it actually starts in about, I would say, 2016, 2017. Let's go long history. All right, let's Let's go go long long history. history. I'll try and keep it as short as I can. So in about 2016, the federal government came together with all the provinces in what is now known as the Pan-Canadian Framework. And the idea was, let's all work together to come up with a concrete plan to tackle climate change. Now, this is one of those like unprecedented historic meetings where you have everyone at the table. Now, remember, for those of you who follow politics, back in 2016, 2017, the political landscape looked much different. We had a lot of liberal leaders in office. Kathleen Wynne was in Ontario, for example. There was an NDP government in Alberta. Those are two notable ones at the very least. So all the provinces and the federal government and the territories come together and they're like, let's do this. And the federal government proposes carbon pricing as a measure to tackle climate change across the country. Everyone agrees. It's almost unanimous except for one province, Saskatchewan, which has long reeled against carbon pricing forever, like literally forever. And part of that is because Saskatchewan is an agricultural based economy and they produce one of the largest amount of emissions in this country. So they're like, nope, it's going to hurt our industry. We're never going to sign on. But for the most part, the, the sort of the consensus was let's do this. So when it actually came time to implement it, the federal government releases its legislation in 2018 and everyone signs on. It's, you know, it's a gradual buildup. But then June 2018, bam, Doug Ford gets elected in Ontario. Dum, dum, dum. And as we know, because I've been on the show before and I'm hoping that listeners will remember me and Emma McIntosh of the National Observer talking about this to no end, he cancels a lot of environmental programs, among which is the cap and trade program. The cap and trade program is a form of carbon pricing program. So the federal government didn't need to do anything in Ontario. But the minute the Doug Ford government canceled it, the federal government had to intervene. And, and according to the legislation they'd created, there was no effective climate change program in in this province. So they intervened and said, okay, well, the carbon price applies to them. Of course, Doug Ford rallied back saying like, this isn't a price, it's a tax. It's gonna kill jobs, it's gonna hurt people. You know the spiel, you've all been living your lives in Ontario for the past few years. And then of course, Jason Kenney gets elected in Alberta and joins that sort of um, the same messaging. Saskatchewan Scott Moe joins that messaging. Uh, conservative leader Andrew Scheer backs this messaging. And suddenly you have, and, and Manitoba's premier um, also joins this fight. And then you have what McLean's beautifully called the resistance. Remember the, the front cover of like the, these five men in suits? I mean, how could she forget? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a beautiful cover and just such a perfect meme now. So blessings to the McLean's cover page designers for, for doing that. So the resistance, as as we colloquially call them, continued to rail against it. And one of the measures they decided to take was let's go to court, because in their view, the federal government was impeding in provincial jurisdiction. What I mean by that is that the federal government was basically trying to step into the province's business. Now, technically, climate is provincial jurisdiction. So that was the basis that the provinces decided to go to court. So we had a huge case in Alberta, we had a huge case in Saskatchewan, we had a huge case in Ontario, 
And there is still a case happening in Manitoba, which we can get to later. Saskatchewan's court decides that, yes, the federal government's carbon price is constitutional. Ontario's decide that, yes, it is constitutional. Alberta's decide, heck no, it ain't constitutional. And they call it a Trojan horse. They say that the carbon price will basically open the door for the federal government to intervene in other aspects of provincial powers, like healthcare or education or whatever else. Um, so, of course, all these cases get appealed to the Supreme Court because no one's happy, right? Now, the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land, and what they say goes. Like, there is no appeals process. There's no fight back. That's the end word. It is the last chapter. It's the last page. It is the end credits. Like, there's nothing after that. So, it goes to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court considers it. There's, like, 50 parties involved in this case, everyone from indigenous groups to uh, climate activist groups to uh, provinces to industry groups, even international bodies who um, want to have a say and try and help the Supreme Court decide. Interestingly, the carbon price case was, was the Supreme Court's first ever virtual case because of course the pandemic happened and they heard it in the fall of 2020. It was their first virtual case, and we just got the decision last week, and we already know what it says, is that it is constitutional. Right. And so I'm curious if you can take us back into this moment of the trial. Because it was virtual, you know, you were able to attend, and so you were able to actually experience the whole trial, which I imagine would be more difficult had it not been that. Because mm -hmm. it's in Supreme Ottawa to start, yeah, and I'm in Mississauga, so... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to guess it was an auto. I was like, it's probably harder for you to do that. <laughs> and so what were your main takeaways after those days? Like what, what was your experience being there or listening to it? And how, how did you sort of get the sense of the room? I think not just the Supreme Court case, but all the court cases that I watched, like even Alberta's was um, streamed online just because of the sheer number of parties that were involved in all of them across the country. Um, Saskatchewan's was also streamed online. Um, Having watched all of them, not even if it was just snippets, the judges and justices asked very hard questions, right? Because at the end of the day, this, is, this isn't just a case about how do we tackle climate change. We're all on the same page of that. Even the provinces who are arguing against the federal government's private carbon price aren't disagreeing that something needs to be done about climate change. They aren't also saying that climate change isn't real. We're all on the same page in this boat, in this regard. But what is that question is, what does the Canadian constitutional document allow when it comes to addressing something as big and vast that crosses boundaries like climate change? And I, I really enjoyed the questioning that came from the justices in this regard because there was a lot of like okay well if you allow it what does that mean for education or healthcare like and if you don't allow it then can we trust that provinces will actually do the 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 most that they can possibly do to address this global crisis and and those kind of questioning was really interesting to hear in a legal realm because so often when we're talking about climate change we're talking about it as a policy tool or as a business tool 
or as a government tool, we're not often, or, or even an individual tool, like what can I do to, to help mitigate the effects? But this was a whole other landscape, right? This was like, what does the rule of law allow us to do in terms of addressing this huge, huge, huge emergency? And that was really cool. And I think that was reflected in the actual wording of the decision, which I'm happy to unpack if you like. No, yeah, please do. Because one of the things I think I would want to not have misunderstood about this case is specifically what the ruling ended up being about. Because historically, usually when provinces criticize the federal government for overreach, they win. Provinces have won almost forever. Like for anyone who did environmental studies in their undergrad, which I did, the environmental law class is basically a series of explanations as to all of the things that provinces have jurisdiction over And then if you're the federal government, it's sort of like you get to deal with fishes. If there are fish in the water, then you get jurisdiction. And then like energy is in in provincial, which obviously has a huge impact here. And so I think it's really important to note that for a very long time, I think no one thought that the federal government was going to be able to do something like this because of the jurisdictional questions. And so what what about this ruling made it possible for them to actually take action? Because I think it the odds were stacked against the federal government for many, many, many years on the subject, and something happened. So it's a very specific ruling, and this is important to remember. I think like it's very easy to get hyped, like, oh my God, this is so huge and this is so cool, but then to forget that this is a very specific ruling about a very specific policy in a very specific circumstance. What the Supreme Court said last week is that first of all, climate change is an existential threat, so it has to be tackled. Yes, the Supreme Court acknowledges the best way for climate change to be tackled is if everyone works together. But history has shown, and the Supreme Court actually documents it, that history has shown that provinces opt out of working together. We saw that when I mentioned the pan-Canadian framework, we saw Saskatchewan leave the table. And then once Doug Ford and Jason Kenney and Scott Moe sort of, you know, uh, built their bases and, and sort of came on the same side, they all opted out as well. The Supreme Court clearly acknowledges how dangerous this can be when it comes to climate change, that if a province decides to opt out, there is going to be carbon leakage. Because suddenly, if Ontario isn't doing anything to decrease the amount of emissions it's producing, then that those emissions are going to spill over to like Quebec and, and to our neighbors, and it's going to increase the emissions in their provinces, and then they're going to have more to deal with. And then those emissions are going to increase across the country, and then those emissions are going to increase across the world. The, the Supreme Court clearly lays this out. And because of this carbon leakage, which is the phrasing the Supreme Court used, um, it was imperative that there is a mechanism where the federal government could help mitigate those impacts, those disastrous impacts. So the Supreme Court very carefully says that the federal government can only intervene in a province's jurisdiction if it doesn't have an effective plan. And the Supreme Court also acknowledges that carbon pricing has been proven to be the most effective plan. Um, and, and we know that carbon pricing has won a Nobel P- Prize award, right? It, like it, it won the Nobel Prize two years, three years ago, rather. Um, it's been acknowledged worldwide as the best way to, to tackle climate change. And the Supreme Court also acknowledges this. But again, so specific, right? If a province isn't doing anything, if it doesn't have an effective carbon pricing, that is the only case where the federal government can extend its powers. 
those conditions have to be met for this to happen. So yes, it's a win for climate change because the wording the Supreme Court uses is the strongest wording that I've read in any court case or the lawyers that I've spoken to have read in any court case around the world or in Canada. And, and I think that's going to be cited worldwide uh, moving forward in any legal case about climate change. So yes, it's a win, but it's also incredibly specific because this is about how the Canadian Federation works and how it can tackle climate change, which isn't written into our constitution because the constitution was created in the 1800s and climate change wasn't a problem then. And so I'm curious if you can dive into exactly the distinction the Supreme Court made, because the Premiers keep saying this is a carbon tax, but the Supreme Court was very, very clear that that's not how they understood this. So you dive into the exact way that they justified this. So to explain that, I want to get into the three justices who disagreed, right? So there were, so there's nine justices in the Supreme Court. Six of them were like, yes, it is constitutional. Three of them were like, wait, no, it's not constitutional. And their reasoning is really interesting. And their reasoning was sort of cited by all of the provincial premiers who who were against the carbon price from the get-go. Two of the justices were blatant in their remarks who, and, and said that, you know, this is going to open the door for the federal government to intervene. Like, I don't know how you stop the federal government from doing this again in various different issues. The third justice who was against it was like, yes, I understand that this is effective, but she was hesitant right? She, she, she took pause. She was like on the fence about it. She's like, on the one hand, I see the prevailing need for something like this. But on the other hand, we don't have any stopgap measures to, you know, prevent the federal government from abusing its powers, for example. And the, the majority decision sort of responded to these remarks, right? And they said that, look, we are setting out very clear, careful, measured conditions that have to be met only when it comes to carbon pricing and climate change. This is not about healthcare, this is not about education. Should the federal government want to intervene in a province to you know, establish some sort of measure in any other part of a provincial jurisdiction's sector, then they have to prove the same conditions before the courts again. They can't just do it willy-nilly. It's very carefully worded and you know, all the lawyers I spoke to saying that, yes, of course, there's merit to what the dissenting justices are saying, but the response is just as careful and measured. So you can't, you know, it's it's addressed. And now we just have to have faith that the federal government isn't going to abuse its power and really carefully read what the Supreme Court is laying out in all of its concerns and it, in all of its advice. Yeah, that's interesting. My own misconception, I guess I'll own this, going into it was this was going to be a question about whether or not the federal government had the power to implement a tax, which, you know, is the one thing that I thought was still in federal authority. But then the tax obviously was a tax starts dealing with natural resources or or energy, then that gets messy. But in fact, this entire thing was not even talking about that. It was actually a question of peace, order and good government, which is sort of this wonky addition to the Canadian constitution that is kind of like the catch-all. Like it's a thing that gives the federal government power to do kind of like things that they don't think about yet. And so it's a question about that particular piece. Can you get into a bit about the peace order and good government part of the constitution at all? I can because I'm a nerd, but also I want to correct you and stop you from calling it a tax because even the Supreme Court said, don't call it a tax because it's not a tax. (laughs) 
Can we stop? Look, PSA, it is not a carbon tax. No matter how many premiers and elected officials keep calling it, it is not a carbon tax. A tax puts revenues in the government's pocket and then the government has to spend it on things that you and I are going to use. This is not a tax. It's it's a revenue system that is returned to Canadians. Sorry, rant over. To answer your question, though, uh, the more important question. So the Canadian Constitution was, again, designed in the 1800s, right? So it doesn't include everything. And our are the writers of that document had the foresight to say like, look, if something comes along in future years that we haven't addressed in this constitution um, and that the federal government wants jurisdiction over, even if it seems like it's a provincial problem, here is a clause. It's called the peace order and good government clause. And basically what it says is that there are certain conditions that have to be met for the federal government to take over a provincial thing. And I can't remember all of them because I am not a lawyer, even if I may be sounding like one right now. But some of the conditions include the fact that, you know, this is a matter of national concern, which the Supreme Court in this case did prove that it's not just a matter of national concern, but a matter of international concern. The second thing is that this is a matter that requires unilateral effort. Like it has everyone has to have buy-in in this. And if there isn't buy-in from everyone, then the federal government should have the ability to step in and fill those gaps, which again, the Supreme Court decision lays out in their carbon pricing remarks. So there, there are a set of conditions that have to be met for the federal government to use this power. And in this case, I guess the Supreme Court said that they those conditions are met. But again, specifically in this case, not in every case. Right, yeah. So in this price on carbon or carbon price and and in the decision more generally, are there any other parts of this story that you think might get lost if someone's just reading the headlines that you think are really important for Bill to understand? I was very interested in how the premiers responded to the decision. And I think some of that was captured by the headlines, but some of it, I think, was sort of whole folded into the story. So if you just saw the headlines, you might have missed the details. So I want to highlight a couple of them. Ontario, of course, like stayed on its path and was like, well, okay, yeah, but we have a climate plan and we're going to keep that climate plan, even though that climate plan does not include a carbon pricing program. So it's going to be interesting to see how that proceeds. Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney obviously was very angry. I mean, they were all pretty disappointed, but Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney made some interesting remarks where he he focused specifically on the dissenting justices and said that, look, even these three Supreme Court justices see the danger of, you know, allowing a federal government to do this. Having said that, he was asked at the press conference if he was going to introduce a carbon pricing program, because now they kind of have to, right? So he sort of didn't say yes or no, but he said, I'm going to introduce the plan that's best for Albertans. Now, I'm an optimistic human being, and I feel like there's room in there to, I don't know, to have a little hope for, for something interesting coming down the line. So we'll have to see. The most interesting response to me was Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. He sort of gets on this podium and uses a hockey analogy. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of the hockey analogies, but he used this one and it worked. He said, look, the game is over. I'm not going to spend time fighting with the referee. Let's learn the lessons that we want to learn, that we should learn, you know, both provinces and the federal government alike. Let's 
move forward. And he introduced a carbon price. He said that we're, I'm introducing a carbon price along with these three other climate mitigation measures. Let's see how it goes. And I thought that was a very interesting response. Of course, he still called it a carbon tax and he was still mad at the federal government, but he was sort of signaling that he's going back to the table because the game was over, like it, the decision, the Supreme Court had made its decision. So now, you know, he urged Ottawa to learn lessons from the Supreme Court decision and come back and work with provinces in good faith and not make unilateral decisions. That was a very interesting press conference. Like, Truly, I watched the whole thing and I was very, very interested and I'm very curious to see how this goes. The last one, of course, is Manitoba, whose premier said that Manitoba is going to have the last word because their provincial court case is still ongoing. Now, I again, I am not a lawyer, but I can't imagine that the Manitoba Court of Appeal wouldn't factor in the Supreme Court's decision in whatever they decide. But the great thing about law is that it's unpredictable, even though it seems like very set in stone. It is very unpredictable. Like I woke up last Thursday thinking that it's going to be in favor of the provinces because no court in Canada has ever ruled in favor of the federal government's jurisdiction. So when it came, I was like, oh my God, this is huge. So we'll have to see what Manitoba decides. But Yeah, Manitoba does get the last word, which is an interesting position for Manitoba to be in, I think. Yeah. How often does that happen? You know, (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to say that, but I wasn't sure. Like, I don't know the history of Manitoba's participation in Canadian federalism. So it's still interesting that Manitoba gets the last word. Yeah. I mean, they're in the middle of the country. They're not like Newfoundland who had the last word in confederation. It makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. So last question is, so you've sort of covered what the province's response has been. What has the response been from, say, more civil society? I think people are very encouraged. I think people are very encouraged that, you know, the technical nerdy stuff about the case aside, I think people are encouraged by the fact that Canada's top court has come out with such strong language defining climate change and the need for climate action. I think people are really encouraged by that. I think it's a step forward in a conversation that has long been stalled and just caught in a lot of political football and infighting and back and forth and just, you know, been entrenched in a lot of drama. I think now I felt like having covered climate change for a long time and climate change intersection with politics, I felt that there was almost like an exhale like, like, you know, the country just exhaled and be like, all right, the fight is done. Now we can move on and think constructively and productively. But maybe I made that up in my head. But again, I'm op- optimistic. I like to think that maybe this is a way for both sides to finally let go of their egos, their political egos and come back to the table. Of course, politics is never ending. So, you know, If in the event that a conservative party gets elected again in the federal government, that could change everything. And this discussion would have been all for naught. But I'm I'm trying to keep hope. Like it it was honestly, it was a bomb decision. And I think it's going to have great implications moving forward that we're only just starting to see. Yeah, for sure. I I think to me, I think the piece that you highlighted about it being unlocking is what I'm left with. You know, just this feeling that Canada 
in this mishmash of federalism, like I, in my university, which is now over 10 years ago, had a professor who studied Canadian federalism and compared Canada's attempts to do anything on climate with the EU's, but noted the EU actually is stronger as a federal government over its actual countries than the Canadian federal government is. And so he was sort of highlighted just exactly what he said, how difficult it was to really see this action forward and how unlikely we might be able to get more than that. And this is, you know, here's his hope that we have it to us. So yeah, you know, you have been covering this story, you know, as you said, for at least the last three, if not the last five years. Are, do you have any, any last thoughts you'd leave people with, you know, going forward? You know, I think there are multiple ways to tackle climate change. We've learned this over the years, right? And I think the biggest thing that, my biggest takeaway is that accountability comes in various forms. The Supreme Court's decision wasn't one about accountability. It was one about what can Canada do? What is Canada allowed to do in in the constraints that it has? And my biggest takeaway is that Canadian federalism is tied together by such a fine thread. It's so fragile, like the smallest thing can tip it over. And I'm hoping that our elected officials read all 405 pages and will realize that something as big as climate change, I don't know, there's nothing bigger than climate change other than the pandemic, of course, but um, climate change has been happening longer. So uh, it has a one up on the pandemic, let's be real. Something as big as a national emergency like climate change, like the pandemic requires a group effort the kinds of which we've never seen before. And, and I think that is what the Supreme Court is urging, right? By laying out exactly how provinces have opted out in the past and how that has worsened climate change, not just in Canada, but around the world, they're highlighting the fact that there is a group effort needed here. And, and for that to happen, everyone's got to find their way back to the same page somehow. And I'm really hoping this decision puts all our elected officials on that path. Of course, it hasn't. I mean, you know, the two conservative responses come to mind just thinking about, you know, what happened first was Andrew Scheer and how he used the Swiss Canal meme <laughs> where he labeled the big boat China's greenhouse gas emissions and then the little digger Canada's carbon tax. It's not a tax, remember? I was so, so upset by that meme because I love it so much. And I'm like, this is I don't know, like the messaging was wrong, right? It was like, is he trying to say that Canada's carbon price won't do anything because China's greenhouse gas emissions are so big? That's not the point, right? The point is what is Canada's duty and responsibility here? And if we're not decreasing our emissions, then aren't we contributing to the problem no matter what any other place is doing? And then second one was a Calgary MP who you know, created a video and, and said, well, the Supreme Court decided today that, you know, the carbon tax, again, in air quotes, is uh, constitutional. And then she she went on a series of questions. She was like, well, is losing your job unconstitutional or is, you know, not being able to feed your family unconstitutional? Like, I'm not remembering the questions, but that was sort of the, the line of response she was going down, which, again, didn't make sense to me because I was like, that's not... A, that's not what the Supreme Court is saying, and B, that's not what carbon pricing is doing. So I am worried that the elected officials will take nothing away from this, but I'm also stupidly optimistic and hopeful that maybe this will change something. 
that's a great place to end it on an lot of optimism. <laughs> so rare for this show. Thank you so much, Fatima Syed, uh, freelance journalist. And if you want to read this particular story, it is in the Narwhal. So check them out. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Smoking the smoke with your lips. Look at your lips. Look at your neck, like greasy from your dead skin. Too greasy to fall off your neck. Let's go. Let's go, I said to the fields. Golden machines, those massive fuckers. Lubricated tubes, endless in years. You know what I'm talking about? Cradling of vegetables that are sliding down the cylinders. You know, hydraulic surging of the ground. Each crop, each batch, each season. Who needs seasons? Your foie gras grown in a laboratory. Tastes good, doesn't it? Tastes good, doesn't it? Yeah. You look at us from here like, fucking on these fake blood leather couches. Where the goddamn cow? Regarding the uh, Supreme Court of Canada decision to uphold the federal government's ability to impose a nationwide carbon tax under the Constitution, uh, Catherine Abreu of the Climate Action Network said that the Supreme Court of Canada has given a love letter to the planet. Stuart Elgie of the University of Ottawa said it was the most important environmental decision ever in Canada. Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson said it is a win for the millions of Canadians who believe we must build a prosperous economy that fights climate change. Keith Brooks of Environmental Defense celebrated the decision, but said we need to keep holding the government accountable and pushing for greater climate ambition. Emma Jackson from from 350.org said it was good, but pointed out that the American Petroleum Institute has also recently come out in support of a carbon tax, and if we let the carbon tax take over climate policy, we will be allowing the fossil fuel companies control over climate action. I wanted to include a couple thoughts after the interview because I have really two distinct things that haven't been covered yet. The first is a bit looking back, and the second is looking forward. And looking backward, I think in many ways it can't go understated how much this is the ghost of Kyoto coming back to haunt modern-day conservative provincial governments. For, if you, for, for as you trace back climate policy in Canada, you see the pattern time and time again. The federal government tries to align provinces, they have a few meetings, and then at some point a group of provinces abandon the process and blame the federal government for when it tries to act unilaterally. Former conservative premier of Ontario, Mike Harris, did this with Kyoto. And as as the interview mentioned, it happened again in 2016. And so the constant demand from provinces that the feds, quote, come back to the table is laughable. And Supreme Court literally pointed out to these past actions by the provinces as part of why this federal approach was necessary. And looking forward, I think there are a few distinct points. The first being that this is definitely good news and definitely gives hope for a stronger federal action on climate change. And that is unequivocally good. That said, it does not in any way mean we can sit back and rest on our laurels. You know, price on carbon has always been a conservative response to climate change as it relies on market forces and does little to help to rebalance the scales of our deeply unequal society. Now, I will say a saving grace, an important thing to note of this particular version of a price on carbon, at least the federal required version, uh, is that it at least avoids being regressive due to the fact that all of the money it takes 
it then redistributes back out to people, which, as Fatima mentioned, is also why it is not a tax, uh, as no money is actually received by the government. With that said, so much more still needs to get done, especially in places where climate action is aligned with improving the livelihoods of our most vulnerable and can undo centuries of environmental racism and colonialism. Or it must do that. A price on carbon is part of the solution, but we have moved well beyond the time where it can be the only solution. You know, if this was decided in 1990 and there was a slowly increasing carbon price, then you could probably expect the price of carbon to reduce emissions in Canada enough to match, you know, the, the different requirements. Now, that still would do nothing to help individual people, but that's the, you know, second part of the question. However, now, given the speed and complexity of the problems that we face the world today, the only response that matches the scale that we need is a Green New Deal. And so I hope that this decision is not seen by the federal government as a way to simply say, look, we've done it, we're taking climate change seriously, but is actually the first step on a significantly more robust response. You know, hopefully something similar to the $2 trillion infrastructure plan that the, the Biden administration released uh, today, which we will cover, you know, next week. What, we're covering Joe Biden next week? I mean, infrastructure plan? it doesn't have to be next week, I guess. You can cut that part if you want. But it is a big deal. I guess we don't need it next week. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.